Let's join together in the prayer of illumination. Jesus, you are the light of the world, a light that the darkness will never overcome. In fact, you have overcome the darkness. We are so grateful to you for the victory that you have won for all of us. And we thank you for your word, that you speak to us through it regularly, and you teach us your ways, and you show us who you are. You show us who we are, beloved of you. God, we pray for Will as he brings your message to us today. We just pray that you would open our hearts to understand what you have given him to share with us. Please fill him with your spirit. Illuminate him. Illuminate all of us, Lord. Send forth your light and truth. Let them lead us as we read your word together. Amen. I'm reading Isaiah 40, verses 12 to 26. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for few, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood? Scarcely, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, with that introduction, um, I did neglect to introduce myself earlier, but I am Will. 
Will Downey, the Director of Student Ministries here at the barn, and I'm an occasional member of the preaching team. This Sunday marks both the first Sunday of Advent, that's the four weeks leading up to Christmas, as well as the beginning of the barn's Advent preaching series. So over the next four weeks, we'll be looking at all of the passages talking about the gospel or the good news. However, we are not going to be looking at the New Testament's use of the word, but the Old Testament, and particularly the prophet Isaiah. As Christians, we hear the word gospel, and we immediately jump to the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. It's recorded in the four New Testament books called the Gospels. While the gospel is certainly not less than that, I believe it is so much bigger and more expansive than that alone. So tracking how the idea of gospel or good news developed through the Old Testament will give us a more holistic picture of what Paul means when he uses that word in the New Testament uh, and thus what it means for us today. The gospel, <clears throat> the euangelion in the New Testament, you meaning good, gospel, uh, angelion meaning news or message. And so if we understand how this word has developed, it will help us better understand how to live out our faith as Christians today. Uh, the candle that Mandy lit this morning represents hope. And it reminds us of the hope of the gospel or the good news and what that gives to us. And we are certainly in need of good news today, aren't we? Uh, the 2020s as a decade has been a little bit of a stinker, a little bit of a dumpster fire. All right. We started off January of 2020 with Australia on fire. 60 million acres of forest burned away, the smoke of which could be seen from South America. And you would think that that would probably have been the most noteworthy event to happen in 2020. But March of 2020 said, hold my beer, and the planet shut down. Yes, for all of our time travelers tuning in, I did say the whole planet shut down. All right, while the pandemic craze has largely passed, its effects are still being felt today including but not limited to this draining brain fog that people experience even months after recovering from COVID. And we could take the whole morning recounting all of the lousy things that have gone wrong the past three years. So I'm going to bullet point a few other highlights and move on. Uh, we saw race riots and protests. We saw insurrectionists taking over our nation's capital. We had murder hornets and Time will tell, but we may have seen the beginning of World War III. And that's not even considering personal tragedies that each of you have felt. You can laugh or you can cry at the absurdity of it, but the past few years have left us haggard, tired, utterly exhausted on every level. When things are going great, we don't tend to question it. But when life is turbulent, we start looking for answers. We start looking for hope. But what can we hope in when we're tired and everything around us seems so wrong? I believe that the gospel offers hope for the haggard. I believe that the gospel offers hope for the haggard. Our text this morning is Isaiah 40. We'll be looking at the entire chapter, uh, but verses 9 to 11 offer a really good cliff note snapshot of the whole chapter. So turn in whatever format of Bible you prefer to Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 9. 
And this morning we'll be looking at Israel's hope, why it matters, and what it means for us. Israel's hope, why it matters, and what it means for us. The context that Isaiah was written in is one of the more interesting in the biblical canon. Isaiah was a Jewish prophet. He was writing in the 8th century BC. And in his day, the kingdom of Israel had been split into two. There was the northern kingdom of Israel, consisting of 10 tribes uh, of Israel. And there was the southern kingdom of Judea, which consisted of the other two tribes of Israel. When Isaiah wrote the big bad nation of Assyria, Assyria was on the cusp of completely destroying the northern kingdom of Israel. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are addressing this audience and this situation, calling the people of the southern kingdom to repent, to turn back to God, and thus to be saved from experiencing what their northern brethren were about to. And in a shocking anomaly within the biblical story, they listen to him. They do repent. They turn back to God, and as a result, they are saved for a little while. We have historical records from the Assyrians going over all of the people that they conquered at that time, all of the nations, all of the, all of the people. And as they're going through that list, they get to Judea, and they say they didn't conquer them. And if you look at a map of everything that they took out, this one little hole, this one little pocket, it's downright miraculous. All right, so we're going to time jump 150 years, and there's a new big bad on the block, the kingdom of Babylon. All right, Jeremiah, like his predecessor Isaiah, calls the southern kingdom to repent and to turn back to God. And in a much more normative experience in the Old Testament, they ignore him. And Babylon comes in. They steamroll the remaining tribes of Israel. They destroy Jerusalem, they kill the people, and they carry some off into exile. And now the Israelite people exist as a, as a people without a nation for 70 years in Babylon, and after that, Persia. The latter half of the book of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, address these Jewish exiles who are about to be allowed to return to their homeland. Now that's very interesting. How did that work? Um, is this a two-author situation of people writing at different times? Or did God enable Isaiah to see prophetically into the future and to speak to these people that he was over a hundred years removed from? That's my own personal view. Uh, I'll let you ponder and, and hash out how the book came together. But regardless, the author of Isaiah resumes the prophecy with an announcement of the gospel or the good news a message of hope for the people. Isaiah 40, verse 9, reads, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of the gospel, or the good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of the gospel. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. The good news, the content of Israel's hope, is that God is on his way. Despite being conquered, 
haggard, outcast, living in exile, Isaiah calls them to lift up their voice, to lift it up with strength and without fear. I mean, he sent us into exile 70 years ago. Is he coming to finish the job? No. Isaiah 40, 1-2 reads, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sin. God's arrival to these haggard exiles um, is good news. Um, It is news of comfort. It is news of hope. It is news of a new beginning. After all, Isaiah addresses these people, these exiles, as Jerusalem, even though their city had been destroyed 70 years ago. When Christians talk about the gospel, again, they are usually talking about the good news that Jesus died and rose again to save us from our sins. And that, that's true. That is good news worth celebrating. The gospel is not less than that, but it does encompass so much more. We see uh, in Isaiah the pardon for iniquity upon God's arrival. Forgiveness of sins. Yes, that's what we got when Jesus came. But Isaiah's view of the gospel is so much bigger. We also see an inclusion of the end of war and a restoration of everything that was lost. Okay. Talk is cheap. Gods were a dime a dozen in the ancient world. Maybe literally uh, if you found a good cheap idol maker. So why does it matter that Israel's God is on his way? What is all of this fanfare about? Well, as human beings, we inevitably see God through our own eyes and experience. And that's not wrong, but it can be misguided at best. Uh, It can be misleading at worst. Until about four years ago, I approached passages talking about God as Father uh, from the perspective of a son. That was my only experience of fatherhood. Those passages now reveal such a richer and a deeper meaning to me now that I come to them as somebody who is a father. While on the topic of fathers, uh, my own father is an imperfect man, um, but is somebody that I was truly blessed to be raised by. He is such a godly man. He has unconditionally loved me my entire life and raised me in the fear and admonition of the Lord. So when I hear about God as Father, I'm, I'm filled with these warm, fuzzy feelings because of my own father. But I've talked to many men and women who did not have that experience of a father. And when they hear that God is Father, rather than producing warm feelings, it produces roadblocks and barriers that they need to overcome to get at what the Bible is teaching about God's character. The Bible calls God Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. And I come to that as somebody who has never lacked for basic human needs. Although that span in 2020 when you couldn't get toilet paper did come close. We are limited when we look at God through our own eyes. But Isaiah 40 invites us to see God through his own eyes. See God through God's own eyes. Isaiah 40 and verse 10 reads, Behold, the Lord comes with might. His arm rules for him. 
Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him, or his reward is before him. The God of Israel is unlike the many gods of the nations. He comes in power and he comes in might. To him, the battle is already won and the spoils of victory are already assured. What follows our passage and what Mandy read for us this morning is a Job-like whirlwind tour of all of creation where we get to see things from God's own perspective. And we learn two things. First, that God is completely immeasurable. Isaiah delivers a series of rhetorical questions. All right, he says, Who measured out the waters? Who marked off the heavens? Who weighed out the mountains? God alone. Who gave God the counsel or the instruction so he knew how to do that? It certainly wasn't us. Even in the 21st century, we make educated guesses about how even the most foundational forces of the universe operate. The sheer magnitude of the sun blows my mind. I'm talking about the S-U-N, bright thing in the sky, not the S-O-N, though Jesus does blow my mind. Um, But nevertheless, God spoke the sun into being. He spun black holes into existence, and he did it in a day, depending on how you read Genesis 1 and 2. Did we teach God how to do that? No. Do we teach God how justice and morality should work? No, it's out of him that those ideas flow to us as people made in his image. And all of those big bad nations that stress us out, to the ancient Israelites it was Babylon and Persia, to modern readers maybe you're thinking about the leaders of places like Russia, China, or North Korea, Verse 17 says that they are like nothing before God. No, God, you don't understand. We're one power-crazed lunatic away from whole nuclear holocaust and the end of the world. Well, that's seeing things from our eyes. But how does God see it? Verse 15 says that from God's perspective, if these great rulers and nations were put on a scale, they wouldn't be some hefty weight going boom. It would be comparable to a film of dust that collects on the scales, barely even noticeable. The might of God is immeasurable. And closely related to that, the might of God is beyond compare. Who is God going toe-to-toe with in these passages? It's idols. Man-made objects of worship. Verses 18 to 20 give some examples. You have Beautiful artisan statues overlaid with gold and silver. Maybe you've got a few knockoff brands made of wood that doesn't rot. However it works, though, you you put them there, you set them up, and then they just sit there, unmoving. Oh, that's pretty cool. Definitely something worthy of our worship, right? Your time, your thoughts, your veneration, your emotional investment. Or maybe not. Right? People in the ancient world were pretty silly to worship things like that. Us modern enlightened people wouldn't be giving all of our time and energy to these lifeless, inanimate idols, tying up all of our identity to false gods. Just give me a second. I think I'm getting a notification. <laughs> Pokemon Go. Oh, it wasn't Pokemon Go. It was Reddit. Shower thoughts. Dink Christian memes. Politics, that'll be good. 
Trump tweeted, what? Oh, now I'm going to be all worked up. <sighs> I'm going to go home and I'm going to eat some ice cream. Ice cream always makes me feel better. Got to get that dopamine hit. Anywho, what were we talking about? Now you guys know I'm being facetious. Trump isn't on Twitter anymore. Reformation leader John Calvin wrote that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. That was true in the ancient world. That was true in the 1600s when John Calvin wrote, and I think it's true today as well. You see, I believe that there is a God-shaped hole in every human being. And if we are not filling that with God, then we're going to stuff anything else in there to try to dull out the longings of our heart. It might be food. It might be social media. It might be politics. It might be sex. It might be binge-watching all 30 movies and 19 TV shows of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You pick your poison. Now, I'm not coming to you and speaking as a sage. I am coming as a fellow addict, somebody who compulsively reaches for my smartphone anytime I've got any quiet space in my mind. Isaiah 40, verse 25, asks another rhetorical question, and this is God speaking. To whom will you compare me that I should be like him? While modern idols may satisfy or distract us for a while, they can never make us whole. They can't compare to God. So God coming matters because he's mighty, and his might is immeasurable and incomparable, and that's worth taking note of. But what does that mean for us? And why would that produce hope in us and not dread? Well, the reason any of this matters, friends, is that God, who is all-powerful and all-knowing and in control of all of the things that happen, is for us. God is for us. That means he's for our well-being and our betterment. Verse 10 touted God as this mighty, unbeatable victor. And that would be terrifying if God came to us as a tyrannical dictator. But look at how he is described in verse 11. He will tend his flocks like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them close to his chest and gently lead those who are with young. God uses his vast knowledge to lead us like a caring shepherd. He uses his awesome strength not to throw us down, but to pick us up and to carry us when we're weak. God uses his might to care for us and also to empower us. Isaiah verse 28 to 29 lays this out. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. If you're looking for a good spotter at the gym, look no further. And this isn't some pie-in-the-sky promise to us. It's real. I know it's real, because it's something that I've called God on several times. 
Few things have made me feel more faint and more lacking in strength than parenting a newborn. All right, you throw constant neediness, you throw inconsolable cry, uh, crying, you throw sleep deprivation into the great crockpot of life, and that's a recipe for, for feeling helpless, for feeling hopeless. And at my most hopeless, I would go and I would take a walk on the property. Down past a retreat center, I would often stop at the pavilion that's been put there at the edge of the property. And there, God would meet me. He would comfort me. He would refresh me. And then I could return home with renewed strength. Now, those walks are coming a little bit less frequent now that my kids are getting a bit older, but they still happen on occasion. And when they do, God still meets me there in my weakness. Isaiah 40, verse 31, promises... But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, a keen observer will notice that this verse goes opposite the direction that you might think. If I was uh, a motivational speaker uh, or self-help talker, we would all be in a lot of trouble. But if I was a motivational speaker, I would probably have inverted this, all right? Start with walking, all right? Then pick momentum, uh, pick momentum up and start running, all right? And then take to the skies like an eagle, all right? At that point, I'd probably be like shouting and waving my hands around and walking back and forth and, and, and yelling, all right? But that's not how uh, Isaiah set this verse up, all right? He inverts that. Uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, He starts out with mounting up on wings like eagles and then goes to running and not uh, not growing weary and then gets down to walking but not fainting. The energy is decreasing as this verse goes on. There's many views for why uh, the author does this, but to me, this decrease in energy seems to be saying Whether you are brimming with pep and enthusiasm or you are just struggling to put one foot in front of the other, God is here to meet you, to uphold you, to strengthen you. The hope of the gospel is so much more than we go to heaven when we die. Today we are reminded that it intersects with our life here and now. Israel's hope and our hope is the same. God is coming. That matters because he is mighty, far beyond our comprehension, and he uses that might not to subdue us, but to strengthen us each day. The strength that God offers is there. We need but meet with him and ask for it. But speaking for myself, it's often so much quicker and easier to just settle for my comfort idol of choice whether that be games, whether that be Reddit, whether that be stress eating. None of those things are bad except maybe stress eating. But none of them can fill the God-shaped hole in my soul. So I wonder, what do you run to when you are feeling weak, stressed, or tired? This week, rather than turning to coffee or checking the Dow Jones or exercise, Try running to God. 
Now that vague encouragement could look like a lot of different things, likely centering around the spiritual disciplines that God has given us. It might look like not sleeping near your phone, so that when you wake up first thing in the morning, you can meet with God rather than the notifications that have been piling up. Um, I don't know if you saw it coming in, but the barn has some Advent guides uh, in our welcome area, some for uh, families with young children, some for everyone else. Um, Consider taking one of those and making a point of meeting with God each day on the lead-up to Advent. It could look like coming out to the property and making some time for silence and solitude on our many walking trails. Consider taking a fast. You could take a traditional fast from food to be confronted by your own mortality and to meet with God. Or you could fast uh, from technology to be confronted with your socially acceptable 21st century addictions and also to meet with God. When it comes to how to tap into the life and to the rejuvenation, to the strength that God offers, you're limited mostly by your imagination. If you already have some pretty well-established spiritual disciplines, then I'd challenge you to mix things up. Consider doing something that you don't usually do this Advent season. Variety really is the spice of life. But regardless of what form it takes for you, take hope and find strength in the gospel of God's arrival this Advent season. Let me pray for us. God, we praise you. You are strong and mighty in a way that's immeasurable and incomparable. And we praise you because you're good, that you're for us, that you love us, and you use that strength to in turn strengthen us. God, I pray that you be with us as we are tempted this week in this Advent season to turn to idols, things that will quickly take away the pain and the longing in our heart, but which will not satisfy us. God, I pray that you help us to turn to you, to turn to the life that you give us, the gospel that you've set out before us. And we'll give you all the praise and honor and glory. In your precious name we pray. Amen.